16th of January, and we are commemorating the uh, 30th year since the passing of Lung Po Chan. Ajahn Shah passed away on the 16th of January, early in the morning, about five o'clock in 1992. And uh, amazingly, his tradition is still going very strong. There's actually more monasteries now in particular in the West, many more than at the time of his passing. So already from that, we can gather that he has a very exceptional power me. Now, even among outstanding Dhamma practitioners, we can notice now that there are still different levels of power me, of spiritual perfections discernible. It's already uh, very rare nowadays that someone has the required strength of the spiritual faculties that they can practice the Dharma and uh, really free their heart from suffering. They really realize the Dharma. And Ajahn Shah is uh, widely considered uh, to have done that. And uh, requires uh, quite for our time and age, quite exceptionally strong sadha faith, exceptionally strong uh, virya, persistent effort energy, strong mindfulness, strong samadhi, and strong wisdom. So that even among all those who are ordaining and making a very genuine effort, there's usually a very small minority, the ones with the strongest faculties, who can really fully crack it. So Ajahn Chah is already in a very exceptional, just from that aspect. However, the ability to understand and realize Dhamma in your own heart is something very different from the ability to explain it and teach it to others. You can see that you know, with uh, other qualities. You know, someone who is an exceptionally good tennis player is not necessarily the best trainer. Someone who is an exceptionally good uh, singer or piano player or whatever is not necessarily you know, the best teacher. So it's two kind of uh, only loosely connected qualities. And in the case of uh, Ajahn Chah, you know, we can see that he had all that is required you know, to practice the Dhamma for himself. But then on top of that, he had exceptional teaching ability. And he was very, very known for his uh, charisma. He was very, very known for being able to adjust his teaching and his whole form of interaction to different people. You can also have the situation that someone can give in a very beautiful Dhamma talks, very inspiring Dhamma talks, but they don't have the ability to really practice it themselves. That is also possible. 
And uh, even that is already quite beyond special. And even if they can't realize it themselves, that they can explain it well. But here with Ajahn Chan, we have this beautiful combination, uh, supreme level in terms of his own internal practice of bhavana and supreme abilities in teaching others. However, I think it goes even further because normally if you are a good teacher, that tends to refer to people who are similar to your own background. For example, if you are in university and you have an exceptionally gifted university professor, I'm not so sure whether that outstanding professor could relate to kids in school, whether he would be very suitable to teach primary school kids or whether he would be suitable to do some teaching for people who are maybe illiterate, usually not. And uh, Ajahn Chah had this uh, tremendous range. And his own background is from uh, Isan, from the village, farming background. And obviously he was very good in teaching other people who come from the Isan, northeast Thailand, from farming background. He had only a limited village school education and then whatever he learned in the village temples. So no one wouldn't be so surprised if he's good teaching that kind of person. But what's so, so special about him, he could also relate to people from Haiso, from Bangkok, he could relate to rich people or ministers or generals or businessmen from central Thailand. But even more outstanding, he could relate to people from a completely different culture, completely different language, completely different background, all the Farangs, the Westerners, and also some other Asian countries. And that is really exceptional. So he has got some farmer who visits him and he can do some small talk with him about the water buffaloes and about the paddy and the next harvest and then skillfully direct to some Dhamma teaching. But he can also have, once he became famous, and he has got some big shot coming from Bangkok, maybe highly educated or wealthy or powerful, and he could also make small talk with them and then get some teaching that is suitable and resonates with them. But he could also relate you know, to some hippie Western dropout from university or you know, hitchhiking around the world or you know, traveling and uh, hanging out in a hippie style and then turning up in his monastery and he could still relate. And even these guys, and quite a few of them, would ordain and uh, train with them. Not just relating on the level you know, that you give a teaching more like in university or like a teacher, but relating on the level you know, that uh, you take them on, he takes them on uh, like a coach. This is again, I think, uh, quite a different quality. A university teacher and a good footy coach 
can see in its different qualities. One is more like abstract theoretically, or really to also provide inspiration, motivation, to give them this, this psychological push and back up. And Ajahn Chah could do that. He could do that for the Thais. And he could do it for all kinds of strangers from other countries. I remember sometimes the senior Western disciple who have met him discussing his outstanding qualities. And what they noticed is that they all have a different Ajahn Chah. Because he had that uh, uncanny ability to play exactly the kind of teacher which was effective for people. Now, one Westerner described he was seeing Ajahn Chah and he was overseeing some work project, I think in Nongpapong. In those days, in the 1970s, Isan, the, the people have this incredible respect and faith in a teacher like him. So he would walk around and he would be very strict not to get things done. And he may be even waving his walking stick at people and sometimes yelling a little bit and quicker and go over here, do this. And this one Westerner that was watching him, typical Western attitude and a quite critical checking out, and very different from the people in the Isan, this is a great Arahant, they wouldn't question anything he's doing, they would just know, sadhu, sadhu, long poor. But this is Western, and he's looking, what, what is he doing there? And I was thinking, can an Arahant be so grumpy and yelling at people and waving the stick? And he reported that suddenly Ajahn Shah turned around and looked right at him, and gave him this beautiful smile and said, no, you couldn't treat the Fawangs like that, isn't it? it? Looks like he also read his mind, basically. And he knew that uh, the Westerner respond much better to uh, more, more like kindness and friendliness. It's even noticeable when you see some of the photos which he did in the US. He had never really been, I'm not sure, he may have been outside of Thailand, maybe in Laos or Cambodia or something like that, not just a directly neighboring, very close, closely related country, but never any, anywhere further. And he had one trip to England late in his life, a little bit in Europe, and then a second one again to UK and then also to the US. And you could see that he would even act differently in UK and in the United States. And although for him this is both very, very far away countries, he could pick that up. And when he was in the US, and he was particularly charming. It's a very strong culture and it's smiley, charming. And he would fully tune into that.
So that is quite an outstanding practicing the Dhamma internally, on an exceptional level himself, then being able to teach that, but not only theoretically, but to inspire and motivate people. And then to do that kind of teaching and that motivation, not only in his own cultural background, not only within his own country, to the different classes of people, no, but be basically on a global scale. And he could be really strict, because ties are often a little bit relaxed. So if someone is too relaxed, too sabai, then obviously a strict teacher is helpful no, to push them. However, many Westerners already have issues no, with authority and rebelling. They may have issues with uh, being uptight and tense. They may have issues with um, low self-esteem or negative attitude to themselves. And then if you have a very strict teacher, they uh, may respond to that in a very counterproductively and become even more uptight and more angry or more dejected or more self-critical. So now, if that happened, now, the Western disciple was really down or depressed. And he could be incredible, funny and entertaining. And he couldn't pump out the tremendous amounts of metta until that person then kind of comes out of his of his low. And he could play that perfectly. However, once someone is such a charismatic, outstanding, funny, interesting, supportive teacher, there's also a danger in that. What is a danger if you are close to a teacher like that? You can become too, too dependent on it. You end up constantly relying on the teacher to motivate you, to guide you, to inspire you, to sort out your problems. And then people don't really become independent. And also as he had more and more disciples, it would be physically impossible. You cannot have hundreds of disciples and look after each one with a great engagement, both in quality and quantity. There's just not enough hours in the day to do that. So he also had that ability to support people in becoming independent in their practice. And it was very known that people who like to really hang out with Ajahn Chah, but not really focusing on their own practice, but spending maximum time with him and trying to feed on his energy and so on. And he would sometimes just send them away to a different monastery. He wouldn't allow people to become too dependent on him. And in general, that is a quality of a good teacher again. If you interact with a teacher 
and you notice that you become more and more dependent over the years and something is actually wrong. It's a little bit like a good parent. If you are a good parent, then at some stage your child will be an adult and they will be able to look after themselves and uh, manage life themselves. They may still get some support from you or some advice, but basically you, know, you try to bring them up to become an independent individual which can look after themselves. That's a good parent. Some parents don't like that. Some parents like to try to be dependent on them. Because if someone is dependent on you, then you don't have to be afraid you know, that they abandon you. <laughs> so it's important as psychological to look at what's happening there. And sometimes you know, we may like to make someone dependent because then we fear we are not in danger of losing them. And same can happen with a bad spiritual teacher. Some teacher and they may have disciples for their own ego. They're having branch monasteries, having many disciples, being admired and they're treated as a teacher by many monks and nuns. And if a person is not free from defilements, that can create lots of defilements and lots of conceit in their mind. And that kind of teacher and they may like you to be dependent so that you don't go to another teacher. A true teacher who has not realized the Dhamma, of course, doesn't have any such thoughts. Ajahn Chah wasn't depending on having many disciples. He was teaching out of compassion, not to elevate his own status. Same with the Westerners. There was actually a crucial moment when Longpo Sumedo came as the first Western disciple. Now, this big American monk, there was quite a sensation when he walked in there because he's uh, exceptionally tall. And it is quite common that as a Westerner, a foreigner, you get privileges in the Buddhist countries. I've experienced that myself now in Sri Lanka. Because people acknowledge you, know, you have it more difficult, you don't know the language, you're not used to the food, uh, you don't know the culture, you're struggling with the climate, with the bugs, so, and you're very special. So you know, usually you get you know, lots of leeway and lots of little privileges and special treatment. However, Ajahn Chah, when Lumpur Sumedho came in and asked him at some stage to really uh, live there and that uh, he was already ordained, but to Ajahn Chah to take him on as a disciple, that he really becomes his teacher. And one condition Lumpur Chah gave, that he has to do everything like the Thai monks. And I think that this is already one of the secrets that he was so successful in training Westerners. In a sense, you can say Ajahn Shah was a disciple of Ajahn Man. 
They have never really lived together. He has visited him only once for a few days. But it was a very uh, revelatory meeting. had a huge impact on Ajahn Chah. Then later he trained with two disciples of Ajahn Man. So in a sense you can say he's also an Ajahn Man disciple, but Ajahn Man had many disciples. And very amazingly he had even quite a number who were considered fully realized Dhamma practitioners. But even so, all the other disciples of Ajahn Man, even a dozen who would be very well known and quite famous, Altogether, they would have less Western disciple than Ajahn Chah just on his own. So he had a really exceptional power me in teaching foreigners, which of course for us is very important in being a foreigner, <laughs> at least for me and for others who are not Thai. And I think one of the secrets for that success was his early deal with Lumpo Sumedho. But boy, it was tough on Ajahn Sumedho. <laughs> because he had to sit on the floor, concrete floor, no cushion, just a single layer cloth, and sometimes five hours or even longer. And those days, Ajahn Shah would still teach for hours, and sometimes he may teach virtually through the whole night. And you have to sit there and puppy up, underly, and only occasionally can you even shift to the other leg. And you wouldn't understand a word. Can you imagine how tough that is, and in the heat? But that was a deal. The Thai monks had to attend that, so he had to attend it. The Thai monks have to be there for the three o'clock morning puja. Lumpur has to be there. The Thais have to help with the sweeping or even with the building or concreting, whatever, pouring the water, filling up the water. Lumpur has to do it just as well. In fact, in some stage, even Lung Pasomedo couldn't take it anymore. And he got upset and he felt that he should have more time and energy to really meditate formal bhavana. And he went to Ajahn Shah complaining about that, although they had that agreement. And then uh, Ajahn Shah looked at him and then he made an announcement to the whole Sangha that now Ajahn Sumedho doesn't have to help with the sweeping, doesn't have to help with the watering, he doesn't have to join, he doesn't have to come for morning puja even, he can go to his kuti and just meditate. <laughs> and Lumpur Sumedho went back to his kuti and meditating and meditating, but after a while he realized it doesn't work. <laughs> Being the one odd out and the only one not joining with all the duties, and after time he realized now, that you don't feel happy like that. And quite voluntarily he came out and he joined everything again. And uh, Ajahn 
Kimanandu was still ordained personally by Janshan. He also told me that. He always had a great liking of many Ajans in the Dhammayut tradition from Ajahn Man, and he visited many of the great Kuba Ajans. When he was around, there was the Lumpa Kao, Lumpa Ren, Lumpa Dun, Lumpa Sim, and so on. They were all still alive, even Lumpa Fun, I think. Lumpa Dun grabbed his nose. Nadra Kimananda has got this quite noticeable nose, and even for Favang's quite big. And when he bowed to Lumpur Dun, when he came back up, Lumpur Dun just grabbed his nose and started laughing. So he met most of them, and also Lungta Mahabua. And he said what really struck him is that the monks training with Lungta Mahabua, the Westerners, they often wouldn't really know the chanting or when there's an invitation or paveta chanting, they may not know how to chant the paveta. Now, the normal, typical monk skills, now, which one learns, vinayotra susikito, as we chant in the Mangala Sutta. Now, they didn't really have that. And uh, you felt it's much more beautiful and more beneficial and suitable now, that as a monk, now, you know all these basics. And that you can give the precepts if a lay person asks for that, and that you can do some pavita chanting or funeral chanting if required. And one reason why he, in the end, decided not to train with Ajahn Chah. I think another very wise decision he made was with Lumpur Sumedho to start a monastery in Thailand, but specially for Fawangs, for Westerners. Now, this is Wat Banana Chant, which is still going. There's still a large monastery now, Ajahn Kivali, the abbot. Because in the early days, the Westerners came and they stayed in Nongpapong and they trained uh, according to Ajahn Chah's basic deal and they have to join everything. And Numpa Somedo had the stamina and the pavami and to last through this training. But in the end, uh, um, it is a difference. And if you're not used to the climate and the food and so on, it may end up that you just can't handle it. But if you have a monastery for Westerners, then it's a little bit of compromise. You can have the teaching in English. They're not so isolated. and They have others. And the more senior ones can teach them also Thai language. But they're still in the Thai context. So I think that was quite a brilliant move as well. Starting a monastery, only 10 minutes drive, and you can even walk from Ajahn Chah's monastery to Atpanana Chat. And you can quickly go there, or they can visit Nongpapong. But it makes it a little bit easier, because that monastery can be more adjusted to the needs of the Westerners.
Another thing I noticed in the Ajahn Man tradition, typically in the famous monasteries, you have got one Ajahn who is in a kind of the enlightened Abahant, and he's the abbot, and all the rest now are just the boys in the line. There's, there's a huge drop. And if you train with uh, Lungta Mahabua, usually no one would, it wouldn't occur to anyone to suggest to Lungta Mahabua what he should be doing, whether he builds a new sala or not, or what kind of sala. But Lungta Mahabua will just make these decisions. And no one would even think about uh, getting consulted on that, except maybe just the second monk, Lumpur uh, Panya in that case. And all the rest, no, they are just no, almost a little bit like equal, and then this big gap to the enlightened Avant abbot. But Ajahn Shah had the habit of drawing in the other senior monks, the Ajahn Stevas from Ten Veins, and he had the habit to regularly meet and then coincide with them. Obviously, he would, they would all have faith in him, he's their teacher, so if he really wanted to do something, they would usually just go with it. But nevertheless, there was this discussion and consultation process. And I think that is one reason that there's a big difference after he passed away. Because if you go nowadays to any of that, of those monasteries from the great Ajahn Man disciples, years after they have passed away, they're usually, most of them are no longer that attractive. Once a big stupa has been built as a last act in the life cycle of these monasteries, you know, the Ajahn passing away, and then the grand funeral, and then the stupa, and then uh, the monastery is just in decline. I've seen that in a visiting Vatoi Me Pang, which was in the Lumpur Van, who was maybe the most famous monk in the 1980s in Thailand. I mean, I was there in, um, eight years ago. There was maybe uh, six or seven monks and they were just struggling. Now, the abbot was just working all day trying to maintain the infrastructure. In the heydays, now, they had 60, 17 monks and there's Ajahn Van's hospital kuti, his first kuti, his normal kuti, his museum, the Oposata Hall, the Eating Hall, the Small Sala, and so on, and all the kutis. And only in the six, seven monks left. However, if you go to Wat Nong Papong, you know, 30 years after Ajahn Chah's passing, and 40 years after he stopped teaching, you know, the place is thriving. And the one reason is Lung Lien, his successor, and the other reason is you know, that he had already instituted a system where the Sangha got used for the Tevas to meet 
and then make the community decisions together. And that is still the case. It's actually uh, truly, uh, truly remarkable. So many monks. It's usually not the one in January, but the meeting for his birthday on 17th June, where the Sangha is discussing Sangha business. There's usually a discussion before under Lumpur Liam Skuti if there are any issues now that they are already prepared now the day before. And then that is discussed now with uh, hundreds of monks present. And uh, anyone can show up and, and if they think then they have to say something. An incredible open is all on loudspeaker. And even the lay people could just go in, in the monastery and you could hear it on loudspeaker what anyone is saying and what they are deciding. Very impressive. So I think that, that is another reason for that outstanding success. Before Ajahn Sumeto started Chitta's monastery as the first Western Ajahn Chah monastery near London, there had been quite a few attempts. In fact, the earliest attempt was by a German monk, the Venerable Nyanati Loka, who was one of the first ordaining beginning of last century. And we first before First World War, and he was in Europe and tried to start a monastery, but it was not possible. Conditions were not yet ripe. Unfortunately, he went back to Sri Lanka because the First World War came anyhow. I just couldn't do it. And then in the 1920s, he tried again, it was still not possible. And then in uh, UK, they had the English Sangha Trust, which was specifically tasked you know, with preparing and making possible to have a Sangha in the West, you know, monastery and monks. And they have been trying for quite some while. And they often had monks. For example, the famous disciple of Lungta Mahabuana, Ajahn Panya Baddho, Ajahn Panya, he ordained in Thailand with uh, three other monks in the 1950s, and then he went back to England and started living there. And before long, he was not the only one left of the four. <laughs> the others all got married. And then he was used a lot as a teacher. Now the idea was often that a monk, not so much that they are sitting in their hut and practicing bhavana, but that they act as a teacher. So he had to teach in the place, and then they would take him all over UK, and there's so few monks at a high demand. They would get teaching here, teaching there. And he noticed that he's also burning out. But he was smarter than the other three, and he didn't get married, but he went to Thailand and lived with Lungta Mahabua and had an excellent practice there. So he had always failed. And now uh, they invited Ajahn Chah to send disciples, Lumpur Samedo, and start a real monastery. And I think one crucial reason that it succeeded, because Ajahn Chah immediately started with a Sangha. 
and he sent uh, four monks and then quickly five and then they had Anagavikas by cows and then they had new ordinations and they immediately had uh, a large group and this is more difficult it's easier to have just one monk and then some kind of city center with a monk attached the problem is the monk then often becomes more like uh, a mixture of teacher, manager and caretaker and then they burn out and get married there was actually the famous conversation when uh, George Sharp as a president of the English Sangha Trust personally flew to Thailand to personally request and invite Lumpur Chana to start a monastery with his disciples in England and when he talked to Ajahn Chah the translator was Ajahn Sumedho <laughs> and then when they were discussing because George Sharp was concerned it has never worked out and so he asked Ajahn Chah can you give me some reassurance can, can you be sure do you think this monk Ajahn Sumedho really has got what it takes that he can do it and Ajahn Chah said yes I'm pretty sure he's not going to get married. <laughs> it was a top qualification. And Ajahn Sumedha had to translate that. But George Sharp was actually very happy with that answer because it was their number one problem. This is how they lost all their monks. So he really liked the answer. And then they started and they were in this kind of townhouse on a busy street which was already owned by the English Sangha Trust. And it was quite suitable for the lay people in London to get teachings. You can get there with a the subway, with a tube, with a bus. It's not too far. They have got it already. But it was pretty awful for the monks. As a forest monk, they're living on a busy street. Pub was, I think, next door. Traffic constantly people coming and maybe wanting to see you and then uh, George Sharp had this great coverage and this dilapidated country house came up for sale in Sussex he actually pushed it through with a trust that they bought that and to buy it they had to sell you know, this townhouse in London and it was perceived as a huge gamble and many people didn't like it but he had the wisdom and the guidance from Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho and they pushed that ahead that became Chitta Viveka and Chitta's monastery and then they were a hundred kilometers from London and then they bought the forest and then they had forest they could put kutis into the forest and they had a real forest monastery that was the other thing and so Ajahn Shah didn't allow the monks to just get burned out by teaching duties but he made sure that they had a forest monastery with forest and huts and that they continue in the same training which he had established in Thailand. 
We cannot expect every monk to be as charismatic or to be such an inspiring teacher like Ajahn Chah or Lumpur Sumedho. We have to allow monks to gradually mature and to have an environment which is helpful for their training. And the result of that is that we have now, I think uh, when we had our last Zoom meeting, I think it was 28 um, monasteries outside of Thailand being represented over nine time zones. I counted that. We had nine time zones in the Zoom meeting. And we have by now a retired abbot, Ajahn, Karuniko, who was actually ordained in the West. And then he became uh, abbot in the West and is now retired and living in the West. And even Lumpur Samedo is retired uh, in Amaravati. So in the kind of the whole cycle, except for the passing away, we didn't have the funeral and the stupa yet. But uh, Lumpur Liam is already advising the Western monks to get prepared for that since the meeting in 2015, I think Lee was pointing out, you've got to be ready for that. So this is a result, and you have all these monasteries, and you have preceptors, Western monks, who are now ordaining other Western monks. And also other Asian monks, there's also monasteries in Asia, other Asian countries, so outside of Thailand. And that is very unique, and you can see the difference. It's not difficult nowadays in Western countries to find an ethnic temple. But usually you have a monk which is imported from the traditional Buddhist country, and then they just live in their temple. And the people who go there are usually that particular nationality or ethnic group. And they usually don't ordain there, it's quite exceptional. But they have a system where actually people from that country are the teachers and the preceptors, and people from that country are ordaining there and practicing there and becoming abbots and preceptors there. And Ajahn Chah is close to unique on that. And there's Ajahn Taniso, as a single monastery. There's now Ajahn Dik, a disciple of Lungta Mahabuana, but there's absolutely nothing comparable in all of Theravada tradition with that many monasteries. So plenty of opportunities for us to feel Katanyu Katavedi plenty of opportunities to practice mudita and rejoicing that we have such an outstanding teacher with that unusual combination of great parameters. Now these are a few things which come to my mind. I'm sure I cannot do justice to the exceptional accomplishments and noble qualities of Lumpachana, but these are a few 
which I offer as a little sharing as someone who has actually never even met him, but just knows him the second hand from books and from the disciples I have met who had personal contact. Ah, uh, you read a book of Ajahn Chah in Singhalese translation in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Still for a spool, yeah. I know that in English. This is exactly what I mean. So you encountered Lumpur Chah in a Singhalese translation in Sri Lanka. Nip, who is sitting behind you, encountered Lumpur Chah in a Vietnamese translation and got inspired. And now he's also translated into uh, Chinese. And as someone having with that wide range, that's a very, very exceptional. And that is after his death. Because it's usually more easy to get inspired when you can still meet someone personally. It's much more difficult to inspire people posthumously only by, in a, by a book or by recordings. Okay. If there's no other questions, 1.30, Adamone, you'll be back for one hour session. I'll be back 3 p.m. And let's honor, respect, and express our gratitude to Lumpacha by practicing bhavana.